Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. I'm Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanya. That's Creole for something extra. Welcome to the weekend, everyone. I'm Michelle Miller, along with Dana Jacobson and Jeff Floor. You and may have morning, seen her in one of her many roles reporting and anchoring for CBS News. Michelle Miller makes her living telling other people's stories. But now author Michelle Miller has written her own story, a poignant and captivating chronicle of her quest to find and connect with her mother. Belonging, A Daughter's Search for Identity Through Loss and Love, is her first book and our March selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. As co-host of CBS Saturday Morning and a national correspondent for CBS News, Michelle has covered the mass shooting at Sandy Hook, the refugee crisis in the Middle East, presidential elections, and in-depth stories about social justice. Her reporting has earned her top journalism awards, including an Emmy, a Gracie, an Edward R. Murrow, and a Salute to Excellence Award from the National Association of Black Journalists. And author Michelle Miller joins me now from New York. Welcome to Under the Radar, Michelle. It is my pleasure, Callie. Well, I am delighted to have it. I want to alert my listeners that Michelle and I have known each other for a number of years. Number? Um, (laughs) Why don't we just say three decades and call it that? Okay, so we've known each other a while. Um, And as I was saying to her before we started the interview, I knew this book would be good because Michelle is an excellent writer. And uh, uh, so I was looking forward to it. Um, And I will be uh want to say also that I was one of your viewers just startled to see a piece of the story that's included in your book on the air um a part of the story that you were challenged to tell by your son um who was questioning uh some history that you'd share with him about your father so we're going to start there in that you've had a couple of opportunities to actually put on the air pieces of the story that eventually ended up into a book so tell me about that part My husband loves to listen to the speeches of well-known orators, and it just so happened he was was listening to Robert F. Kennedy's speech, one of them. Uh, Perhaps it was the night of the Ambassador Hotel uh, incident, his assassination, and I said to my son, son, uh, your, your grandfather was at the Ambassador Hotel, in fact, had campaigned that day with uh, the, the late senator and was the first physician to get to him when he had been shot. My son looked at me in disbelief and said to me, mommy, I don't believe you. Go prove it. And it was the dare of a child that initiated me to go search for the story that I had been hearing for all of my life through my father and through my aunt. Um, My grandmother had told the story. Uh, There was one picture that I had of him on the cover of Jet Magazine, but nothing of him in the trenches that night. So I went to work the next day after reading a bunch of uh, articles. And in one of the articles it said, in exchange for 
an interview with CBS in exchange for a ride from the hospital back to the ambassador hotel. Um, my father would agree to an interview with CBS News. And I was like, oh, wow, I wonder if that's in the archive. So to make a very long story short, um, we found that eight minute long interview and it, it, it opened up a side to my father that one I had never seen before. Mm -hmm. Well, um, I wanted to start there because your father is at the center of um, the core of the emotional story that you tell more broadly, which is about the quest for your mother, because you knew your father very well. He raised you along with your grandmother, his mother. And but from early days on, you were asking him about your mother and he was avoiding really answering any questions about her. Um, and it led you to believe that she was white to begin with. <laughs> so um, talk a little bit about um, just uh, realizing as a young person that there was something missing that was haunting you um, and you couldn't really get it out of your father. It was obvious that I was, you know, it, that my life was different from all the other people around me. So let's start there. And so people like children would ask me when they would see my grandmother, they would see my father, they would always ask, where is your mother? And I never really had an answer for them. And so one day I remember saying uh, in earshot of my father, um, I don't have a mother. And that really bothered my father and bothered him to the point at which he came to me and he said, Michelle, you do have a mother. She just isn't in your life. And at that point in time, um, I think for him, you know, I think of this man who had a complicated life. He was married when he met my mother in an unhappy marriage by all accounts from his friends and family members. And he fell in love with this woman who of Hispanic, um, she was Mexican-American, um, and and she had me, but yet she couldn't keep me because she came from a family that thought that being attached to an African-American man, there was no purpose and, and there was nothing he could add to her life. They didn't know anything about him being married. Um, it was just the mere fact that he was black. It didn't matter that he was a surgeon, none of that mattered, not his education, none of it. Um, and they told her it's him or us. And she chose her family. Um, and so I think my father was torn. I don't know where he would have gone or what he would have done or, you know, but I think he was conflicted by that. Um, again, he was a complicated man. And uh, I think he just felt it was better to leave sleeping dogs, you know, asleep. Well, the core of the book is you're searching for your mom. And there was one point when you were young that he said to you, we're going to go visit her. And I'd like you to read that excerpt. It's on page 65. Three weekends later, as we were heading back to Big Mama's house at dusk on a Sunday evening after spending the weekend with Little and Tony, Dad took an unfamiliar turn. How would you like to visit your mother, he said calmly, as if this were just a regular conversation. My head whipped around to stare at him. Was he serious? I croaked out a sound that, that passed for consent, and we said nothing more as he merged onto the freeway, driving for some time before taking the exit for Ladera Heights. 
The knot in my throat became a rock as daddy pulled up in front of a nondescript beige apartment building, two stories high. He parked and got out of the car, waiting at the curb for me to join him and taking my hand in his as we walked up to a concrete path to the front door. My jeans suddenly felt uncomfortably snug at the waist and I tugged my yellow t-shirt down nervous, nervously. At the same time, I felt as if I was floating outside my body, looking down on the scene, jotting mental notes to take out and study later on. We climbed a flight of stairs to the second floor and walked down a short open-sided hallway to a plain wooden door. Daddy knocked and a woman opened. She appeared startled to see us standing on her threshold, uncertain about greeting us. She wore a slim-fitting turquoise blue ship dress with wavy white trim at the collar and her thick black hair tumbled loose around her shoulders. My mother is so pretty, I thought. And then I noticed the lake of unhappiness in her eyes. I was quietly taking her in as the three of us stood in silence until finally she stepped aside, allowing us to enter. Daddy put his palm on my back and guided me into the living room. I knew the woman was staring at me. I could feel the heat of her gaze on my skin, but anxious about whether I would pass muster, especially since I hadn't passed muster at birth, I did not meet her eyes. Would you like a drink, Michelle? Some water, she asked. I nodded, the sound of my name on her lips lingering in my ear. The woman turned and walked into the kitchen, and my father followed her, leaving me alone in the small living room with its bright orange couch set off by satiny pink cushions and a white shag rug. I wasn't sure whether to go and sit on the couch or stay where I was. After a few moments, I inched a little to the left to give myself a better view of the kitchen. The woman who daddy told me was my mother was standing with the back. The woman who daddy told me was my mother was standing with her back against the sink. Despite the shadows, the overhead light cast in the wells of her eyes, I saw that she was crying. I couldn't hear what she and my father were saying, but their heads were close together and the woman was shaking her head. No, no, no. Wow, Michelle, I read that and I just, I went back to the age that you were at that time and felt uh, for you so deeply because that was just so hard. I mean, this the the whole search for your mother, which is in the title of your book. And by the way, listeners, I'm speaking with author Michelle Miller, and her book is Belonging, A Daughter's Search for Identity Through Loss and Love. And it's our March selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. But I thought to myself, um, I, I just try to put myself in your shoes, and I, I don't, it would have been hard. And I also wonder, because this is part of the story that you have to tell for people to understand all of your story, which is the other part of it is searching for identity through this, is does it, how you deal with telling this story over and over again now that you've written about it? Is it healing for you or, or are you re-traumatized? You know, uh, Callie, you've known me for a long time. And I, I think uh, part of my ability to do the work that I do, um, there must be some form of resilience and it must have been trained in me early. I don't re remember ever crying over my mother. I don't remember the ache. I, I remember the, the wonder. I remember the absence. I remember the ne I, I, feeling neglected. I mean, I remember those things, but the emotion of it, I'm still numb to, to this day. Um, 
the only feeling that I, I can say that I have experienced is anger and anger, not for me, Callie, not for me. It was anger that I have for my children in her lack of, of willingness to acknowledge me for their sake and their birthright. And I think everything else I understood about her circumstances. But the minute I had a, a child, the minute I had my son and her neglect hit him, her inability to even acknowledge that he was born after I had sent her a notice, it was such a slap in my face. And so I think maybe I, if I'm being truly honest, I've had so many people in my life tell me that I should write a book, if only to allow people to witness some of their own pain, because I cannot tell you how many people have come to me having shared this story in small circles, um, or even through the story that I did um, five days after uh, the murder of George Floyd, um, and sharing that 20 seconds of my story. Um, people have come to me and said, me too, me too. I am just like you. And it's such a universal story because it's a story that is a, a story of, of shame, right? Um, it's a story of, of, of induced morality, a story of, of neglect, um, and, 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 and making people in my circumstance feel as though they don't belong here. And, um, I, I, I think I wrote it, I wrote it as much for them as I wrote it for me. Mm -hmm. Now, it seems to me that you'll, you'll have, of course, uh, a widespread audience, but that, um, Black people reading it will perhaps have a different take on it in that it's not uncommon for us to know uh, and see folks with two Black parents who look like you. Yes. yes. Uh, you know, so that's not uncommon to us. So, um, But in for you, and then knowing what you were going through, trying to find your mother and assuming she was white and all of that, um, that really caused an identity crisis early on that you had to manage till you got to a point through a lot of sometimes very uncomfortable circumstances. I mean, the one with the young man in the art class just got me, I'll, I'll tell you. Yeah. Um, where you had to come to, hey, this is who I am, and I know who I am, and and that's going to be fine. Talk a little bit about the identity piece of the title, which is Belonging, a Daughter Search for Identity Through Loss and Love, um, and why this is really a story about you, but also about race and racism in America. Mm hmm. So, you know, I was that child who grew up and I love television and movies and film. And um, there are messages that come through to us and the messages are either we're invisible or we uh, the, the, the lighter and whiter you are. I think that had an impact on me because I knew I was black. My father was black, my grandmother was black, my aunt was black. I was in a black neighborhood, but I was so light. And at that time, there weren't a lot of people who looked like me in my original elementary school. 
My kindergarten, my preschool, kindergarten, first grade, I don't ever remember there being an issue about my color. Mm -hmm. You know, isn't that interesting? Second, third, fourth grade, all, all the way up, the, the color, and, and we could talk about colorism, that's a whole other story, but color became a thing. I remember being called light-skinned. You know, I remember that. I remember people saying to me, you wouldn't, you wouldn't be as pretty if you didn't have that long hair. Um, and so it, so I, I, be, I became othered in my own community by, by certain people, not all people, because it was a very enveloping, uh, a community I came up with, but the young kids, some of the young kids. And so, you know, always in the back of my head, it's like, okay, what am I, what am I, you know, mm -hmm. imagine it, that's the confusion of it, right? You're trying to place it. You're trying to, where, where is this coming from? And you can't put it all together, right? Because we were growing up in a time in the seventies where the eradication of, of laws on the books saying we were second-class citizens had been repudiated. And yet, the fact remained that we're still in this uneven society. So, okay, went to the <clears throat> neighborhood school. Then I was bused. And it was, we were all bused out to uh, white neighborhoods. And I remember like these wide-eyed looks at, at us as we were getting off the bus. And this, this, it was almost as, as if we were invading their space. And, you know, the children, I don't ever recall there being um, incidences, but certainly there were clashes in mm. terms of cultural speak, you know, and thank God I had a friend and her name was Michelle Woods and she centered me. And I always say, all you need is one person to love you and to accept you. And every time I think of her, I get very emotional because Michelle was this incredibly exuberant, joyful black girl from South Central Los Angeles who made me feel normal. And um, I hope I gave her as much joy as she gave me and acceptance. But I think about her in the fifth grade when, uh, I didn't know where I was, you know, it's, it was just, and yet by the time I had gotten to that junior high school and had lost weight because I was a chubby kid and had sort of felt to come out of that ugly 13 year old stage, you know, that 11, 12 and 13 are really tough times to, you know, because you're going through adolescence, right? you know, you, I started to feel, and I gone to, you know, I, I started to feel like a presence in who I was. And just as soon as I get my footing, the situation happens with this, this guy that I liked at school. And what's so ironic, Callie, Otis Livingston, who was the young man who walked up in the book and said, oh, let's ask Michelle, she's black she'll know the answer. 
I work with him. He's from California like I am, but we work in the same building here in New York City. He's a sportscaster. I'm a newscaster. Wow. Is that not wild? And that's wild. <laughs> and the and the and that shock of the boy looking at me and feeling the presence of absolute uh disdain in the moment of shock and disdain, looking at me saying, You're black. What you're black? And I looked at him and I, and I knew in that moment, this is where you need to stand your ground and state who you are and not look back because this is who you, this is who you are. This is the community you grew up in. This is the family you grew up in. These are the people who love you. Doesn't matter what you look like. This is your culture and do not negate it in this moment. But do understand that that once you have done this and I knew it, he was going to treat me differently. Mm. I knew it. I knew it. And certainly it's like he hated me from that day on. I'll never forget it. It was like night and day. He was the sweetest boy. And then he just never spoke to me again. And that is like the perplexity, the, the absolute nonsensical craziness of racism. That it is based on something so, I mean, I'm the same person, the same girl. I haven't changed. I, and in an instant, knowledge of who you are and what you stand for can make all the difference. So a couple more questions for you, um, because I want everybody to read this book. It's fantastic um, on so many levels. You don't have to be around you very long, Michelle, and I don't think I was initially when I first met you to know how much, how important family is. And I wonder if your own experience, your painful experience of searching for your mom and, you know, finding her not responsive uh, to you and now and even later to your own children has made you a different kind of mother than you might have been. You know... Uh, it was interesting that that's a question for my children because I'm never around enough. If you ask them, I, you know, I think my, my circumstances are different from many circumstances of, of people growing up in that I saw my father for who he was as a real person very early on. And I think we, a lot of children have these rose colored glasses about who their parents are and the lives they live. And, you know, like they, they aren't real people, they're parents. And I think my children that because I'm so passionate about what I do and because I'm on television and I'm a reporter and I'm, I, I, I think that they think it's so comical that the person on television is actually their mom, you know, uh -uh. and it's kind of like, oh, whatever, you know, um, <laughs> I'm, I try to be present, um, but as you well know, this profession is such that we're on the go a lot. And I had to earn my stripes so early on uh, out in the dregs of hurricanes and on on campaign trails or in, you know, social justice, um, in the middle of covering social justice movements. Um, and I don't know. I don't know if I was a great mom. But I was a mom who who came home every night or came home, you know, and who was in a conversation with them every day. Um, I, I think that I am 
a better mother than the mother that I was born to. Mm. That's for sure. And so finally, um, how do you define belonging? Belonging is an evolution and it is, it's constantly the search of being present in your space. Does that make sense? I mean, I feel in every new circumstance, I have to find it. I have to, I have to find my place. Have you found it, you know, after this long quest for your mom and that connection, which didn't turn out as you might have wanted it to? Right. I think I am still, I mean, to be quite honest, I'm, I'm, I'm still, I still feel that void. I mean, there's, there, there, there was no cure to my, my, my search in terms of my mother. Um, certainly I am clear about who I am. Um, I feel that acknowledgement is a very important aspect for us as individuals, certainly for us as a people. And as we end this month of Black history, I think that is a people is what we are seeking. Acknowledgement for our contributions, our place, our, our presence in a society long before this nation became one. And I think we need to own that. Um, I think many of us do own it. We want to be acknowledged. And I, as an individual, I think that's what this book is. It's me saying, I am here. I am present. And no matter what my circumstances of birth are, I, I've, I've lived a, a good life. I have helped other people. And hopefully I've brought joy and I've brought pride to those people who came before me. And belonging is all I can hope for in that space of acknowledgement that I acknowledge myself in that way. Is that what you want people to take away from the book? I do want them to take that away. I want them to understand that so many of us feel sometimes we don't belong. I, you know, part of the reason we're in the the state that we're in is because people don't have a sense of belonging. There is absence of 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 of, of belonging in this for, for so many people. Um, belong to yourself first. Find a community of people who love you. Don't 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 get don't get tricked into believing you have to hate in order to belong. And um, be true to just making a contribution and not taking away, never take away. Well, Michelle, your first book is really something. Um, I love how you say that as if I'm going to write a second. <laughs> well, you may. So I just. <laughs> I will. How about right, that? There you go. I just wanted to let you know that it's it's really powerful. It's so heartfelt. And um, I know that my listeners will really enjoy it. So I thank you for joining me. I thank you for having me, Callie. Michelle Miller is a CBS News correspondent and co-anchor of CBS Saturday Morning. She's the author of her new memoir, Belonging, A Daughter's Search for Identity Through Loss and Love. 
It's available in bookstores and online now. That's it for this week's edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Listen to us online at GBH News or wherever you get your podcasts. And follow us on Twitter and Facebook to stay up to date with our programming. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of GBH, produced by Jesse Steinmetz and engineered by Dave Goodman. Our intern is Jenny Firm. Our theme music is Fish and Chips by We Are Two Saxies, Grace Kelly and Leo P. Listen again on Thursday and see you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday for a new episode. I'm Callie Crossley. Thanks for listening.